Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Facebook. Today is Tuesday, August 25th. Coronavirus outbreaks at colleges are up, American Airlines' headcount is going down, and we're focused on the next global tech giant. Earlier today, China's Ant Group filed for an initial public offering in Hong Kong and Shanghai. It could become the largest IPO in history, bigger than Facebook, bigger than Saudi Arabia's state-owned oil company, even bigger than Alibaba, the Chinese tech giant that originally birthed Ant Group as a mobile payments company called Alipay. Now, Ant does not have much presence in the U.S., particularly after the Trump administration blocked efforts a couple years ago to buy money transfer company MoneyGram. But in China, it is the financial technology company with a huge footprint in everything from payments to lending to investing to wealth management. It's even got a joint venture in food delivery. And according to its IPO prospectus, Ant's profits are up more than 1,000% between the first half of 2019 and the first half of 2020, hitting $3.2 billion. This is the sort of company that in the past would have rushed to list its shares in New York, much like Alibaba did in 2014. But Ant instead turned its back on the Big Apple. And that matters for two reasons. First, it's a passive-aggressive escalation of U.S.-China tensions. Two, it's an effort by China to prove that Hong Kong can remain a global financial hub in spite of a new national security law that undercuts the conditions that help turn Hong Kong into a global financial hub in the first place. In short, Ant and its IPO are as important to geopolitics as they are to capital markets or tech markets. And all three will be paying very close attention as the listing gets closer. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Nisha Gopalan, a Hong Kong-based columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. But first, this. We're joined now by Nisha Gopalan of Bloomberg Opinion. So let's start here. Ant Group files for its IPO yesterday which is kind of the first time we really got to see inside of the company in terms of its financials. What is the biggest thing you learned in the last 24 hours? Uh, That it made a lot of money. (laughs) It made more than two and a half billion dollars in that profit last year. And there were a lot of risk factors. I counted about, you know, I went through the prospectus and I was up to number 20 when we came, (laughs) I came on the podcast. One of the biggest one was geopolitics and the problems with the U.S. They went through that for pages and pages about all the problems about being with the U.S. What is its biggest geopolitical risk since, from what I can tell at least, it doesn't have much current exposure here? It doesn't have much current exposure, but it wants to expand in areas like the cloud and to get technology like that. It has to buy stuff from the U.S. And then a lot of its users are travelers and tourists. One of the things that it mentions as a risk factor is the fact that consumption has come down during COVID at home. But one big hit to consumption has been the lack of tourism and all the lockdowns. But it's not just the U.S. I mean, you've got India as well, banning apps from China. This is the first time there's going to be a dual listing in Hong Kong and Shanghai's star market. But kind of the notable part for those of us in the U.S. is that New York is not on this list. I suggested in a column this morning that that was a snub of New York and a colleague of mine said, oh, no, 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 it's much more than a snub. This is kind of it's an intentional thing and and it's a signal or an intended signal to say that despite the national security law in Hong Kong, Hong Kong can and will remain a global financial hub. Is that an accurate understanding of this? I think that's the message you wanted to send. There's another aspect to it. And I mean, first, they want to prop up the Shanghai star market as well, which is 
one-year-old to the NASDAQ like market in Shanghai. But more than that, I mean, you know, it's a payments app. It's the dominant payments app. Can you really list something like that in the U.S.? I think there are problems on that level. We're not talking about an e-commerce company. We're talking about something that everybody in China uses. I was in China a few months ago. I was using my credit card. I can use it anywhere. Everyone was using Alipay or WeChat Pay. So that's how big it is. When you say that that issue with it being so big, that's actually a reason why this has been delayed a little bit, right? There have been concerns in China that Ant is too big. It is too ubiquitous. Sure, it is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. But what's happening right now is Beijing is developing the digital yuan. So there is competition at home from the government. China is testing the digital yuan in several cities, and there are rumors that they may test it in Hong Kong as well. So this is a good time, not just for Alipay and Ant to raise a lot of money, but also to prepare itself before the Chinese government comes up with its own app. How do banks in China now view Ant? Because for a while they viewed it as kind of their usurper, like coming in and basically destroying their business. They did initially, but now everything has to go through a sort of a domestic clearing system. So the banks are much more, they use Ant as part of their business. And in fact, that is one of the issues for Ant is what if the banks go and do a lot of what they're doing? They've made a business out of microlending, microloans, and this is all stuff the banks are developing right now. So Ant, obviously, from a fintech perspective, isn't going to have much presence in the U.S. for geopolitical reasons, et cetera. How much does it have elsewhere in the world, though? You know, you think of, for example, Southeast Asia, where Grab seems to be dominant, and there are other platforms in other places. From your perspective, is Ant ultimately a China play, or does it really want kind of global dominance ex-U.S.? I think it's given up on global dominance after it tried to buy MoneyGram in the U.S. a couple of years ago, and the U.S. saw that as a national security threat. So it's given up on a lot of developed markets, and what it's focusing now is the emerging markets, and especially the backyard, Southeast Asia, like you mentioned. And it has made progress, but you know, in countries like India, for instance, where it has a stake in Paytm, a payments app, and a lot of Chinese apps because of the clashes in the Himalayan border. So there are threats, there are geopolitical threats. And also in Southeast Asia, actually, MasterCard and Visa are quite strong and quite powerful. So it's not that easy for them to penetrate these markets. Final question for you, just a timing one. The top line prospectus comes out yesterday, but we didn't get at least official word on how much they want to raise, how much they're going to float what the valuation will be. That'll come. Safe to say, though, that unless there's some major hiccup that Ant will be publicly listed in Hong Kong and Shanghai by year end? Safe to say. I think so. Yeah, definitely. Once they've filed, it should be a matter of a few months. Thank you to Nisha Gopalan, who covers banking and deals and all sorts of stuff like that for Bloomberg Opinion out of Hong Kong. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the devastation in California, where seven people are dead, More than a thousand buildings have burned and people throughout the state are looking out their windows at either a smoky haze or falling ash or both. California obviously has been burned before, but what it's experiencing now comes in the midst of a pandemic and is particularly expansive. More than 7,000 fires covering nearly one and a half million acres, both significantly more than what was seen last year. As UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain told the New York Times, quote, I actually don't know of any vegetation type that's not on fire in California. Unfortunately, as California wildfire seasons go, it's still early. 
Today, we are also watching TV ratings for the political conventions. Axios' Sarah Fisher reports that average TV viewership for last week's DNC was down around 17% from 2016, which on the surface could freak out the Democratic Party. But Americans have made a lot of changes in the past four years, with 15% fewer now having pay TV services. And then, of course, there was the virtual nature of this year's event. So key for Democrats will be to see the numbers from this week's Republican National Convention, since the same external factors should be in play. Finally, today we are watching the socially distanced lines at Starbucks, where pumpkin spice lattes are again available. Is it fall yet? Of course not. Are pumpkin spice lattes even good? Not particularly. But does it make sense to add some sweetness to 2020 as early as possible? Absolutely. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producer, Tim Shovers, have a great national whiskey sour day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.